0: Welcome to the Bible for Normal People. This episode is brought to you by Brazos Press, an imprint of Baker Publishing. Find out how Brazos is working to foster the renewal of classical orthodox Christianity by going to brazospress.com/ends.
1: You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Ends
0: and I'm Jared Bias. Welcome everyone back to the conversation. Today we're going to be talking about a perennial question that comes up again and again in the Bible. What do we do with violence in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, sometimes commanded by God? And how does that square with the idea of God as loving? And for this conversation, we're talking with Pastor Brian Zahn. He's the pastor of Word of Life Church, uh, an author of several books. His latest is called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, where he deals with this question of divine violence. His uh, other books that also take a, a stance of peace, A, a Farewell to Mars, um, and many others that you can look up. Really a good conversation because as you'll see in it, while we, we we are looking at the idea of divine violence, we can't help but get back into the question of what is the Bible and what do we do with it? Because it's through the lens of the Bible that we are able to address this question of divine violence. And so, how we read it becomes really important. And we'll hear from Brian on sort of how he Uh, um, how he comes to the Bible, how he comes to the text, and is able to navigate these very difficult questions that people have been asking for centuries. So, a really good conversation. We enjoyed it. I hope you do as well.
2: Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. So, when we look at Christ upon the cross, that's not what God does. In order to forgive, that's who God is, and Jesus is embodying the very nature of the Father. So that when Jesus says Father, forgive them, what does the Father say? Of course, of course, this is what we do. And that is the embodiment of that.
1: Well, Brian, you know, a lot of people know you through you know your website and your writing, and also your you're very active. Twitter life, um, about violence, and you talk about that a lot. So just maybe help us understand how you came to this point where talking out and speaking out against violence
2: and Christianity is such a prominent thing for you. You know, I, uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me, Peter. And uh, I, this hasn't always been my position. I mean, I take a position of nonviolence, and I make a distinction I don't call myself a pacifist. A pacifist or pacifism is a is a position. It's a it's a political ethic that one could adopt apart from Jesus. I respect that. I even admire that. But that's definitely not me. Uh, I have I can be a violent person. I know that about myself. And throughout most of my life. I was a supporter of American military adventures, and thought that this was completely consistent with following Jesus. But about twelve, thirteen years ago, i'm I'm fifty seven now, so we're talking when I was forty five or so, I really came to a moment where I had to begin to reconsider that. And I came to the conviction that Jesus, as the embodiment of the logos of God, really did not only teach, but model and live and die and was resurrected non-violently. And so that forced me to begin to rethink things. And I take the Bible quite seriously. I've been reading it, you know, every day. And since I was 15, I've written about 3,286 sermons. (laughs) That is the correct number, actually. I didn't just make that number up. That's the number. And so I'm working with the Bible constantly, and I know this much. I know if you want to use the Bible to endorse violence, that's really pretty easy to do. Uh, I see how that's done, but I think ultimately that's unfaithful to the revelation of God in Christ. And so, how did I get here? I don't know. I just stayed on the journey with Jesus and something happened that made me go against what I'd assumed most of my life. And uh, if if you want to talk in terms of professionally, I mean, this was a very risky move for me. So I had nothing to gain in the conventional sense of success and numbers and all of that. So to move to a position of Christ-informed nonviolence was a risky move, but I was willing to do it because I believe that's the truth that I discovered. in. Well, risky how, Brian? How is it risky for you professionally? It's risky because I'm a pastor in Missouri that has a congregation that is largely filled with people who would be supportive of uh, America's war efforts. I've got a, a, a lot of military people in our in our church interestingly i would say though career military officers have been among the most willing to seriously have this discussion with me they seem to actually be more willing to talk about this and rethink things than just the average person out there who likes to you know just simply say thank you for your service and let the, let the soldier get on the airplane first, but has never really bothered to think, okay, how does the waging of war line up with following Christ? And so to begin to preach like, I mean, just like I'm talking like now, to say those kinds of sentences uh, in a pulpit in Missouri, in what would at one point have been considered kind of a, you know, conservative, charismatic evangelical church, that's, that's very risky. I mean, it cost me a thousand members if you want to get right down to it. So yeah, it was risky.
1: Mm.
0: Well, say could you say a little bit more? Given that context and your humility that you just uh, kind of displayed by saying, "Hey, if you want to support violence in the Bible, that's easy to do," you know, talk a little bit about what was the thing that shifted your thoughts on this. If it's there, that was your um, kind of default position given your your training and growing up, and then there's something that changed. And you said, well, it wasn't just a plain reading of the Bible because you could easily kind of justify violence in that way. So, what sort of changed in you and how you. I'm, I'm
2: hesitant to do this, but I'm going to have to. You've, you've forced me into a corner. So, I'm going to have to tell you a mystical experience. Hmm. Now, now, when I tell of a mystical experience, I cannot prove this and it can't be disproven. I bear witness to it and let the listener decide um but about the year 2004 that was when i was 45 that was 12 13 years ago i was in prayer one day and just i was just i was doing this exercise i call sitting with jesus it's a form of contemplative prayer where it's as it sounds i'm simply seeking to acknowledge the presence of christ and sit quietly in that presence and as i did that Suddenly, it was like a, a, a surveillance video played in my head, and I was reminded of something that I had forgotten, and, and I really hadn't had any reason to think about it for, well, it's something that happened in 1991, so it was like 13 years earlier, and it was the, it was the, it was the day of the, the first invasion of Iraq, Desert Storm. And this was pretty much pre-internet. So uh, I had the radio on in my pastoral study all day long. And I was kind of listening, and, and we were getting ready to go to war. And I was excited about it. And so as soon as the day was over, I rushed home. Some friends came over. We ordered pizza. We turned on CNN, and we watched war. You know, this is what made Wolf Blitzer famous. America's pastor had prayed with America's president and had blessed this endeavor. And I watched a war on TV, America won, and I thought it was awesome. And I was very entertained and ate my pizza. And that was that. Well, that whole episode was played back in my mind. Then in 2004, as I was sitting with Jesus, and and here's what I say. I heard Jesus say, Brian, that was your worst sin and I was devastated. and I wept and I repented, and that's what put me on a new track. So that's, that's my Damascus Road experience, and, I, and I'm like Paul about it. I just, I'll tell you the story. This is what happened, I bear witness to it, let the listener make of it what they will, but that's really what happened. It was, it was sudden, it was dramatic, and it was mystical.
1: Well, I'll tell you, Brian, one thing that I figured out in my life is that I have no idea what God is up to. Mm-hmm. So, if that happened to you, that and it came out of the blue. I wasn't looking yeah. at. Sure. Yeah, and I think it's nice. You know, when we have God moments like that, that sort of set things straight for us. It's it's a wonderful moment. Um.
2: So okay. So you. But, but then I was left with a task of. All right. How do I? What do I do with the Bible, though?
1: Well, that's the, that's the next question. So okay, what do you do with the Bible that is. Immersed in violence of some sort, whether it's God commanding it, God turning a blind eye towards it, God commanding Israel to do things, God commanding God. Other nations to do things to Israel. You got some moments in the New Testament too. I mean, there's a lot of violence in this book. So that's that's the disjunction that people feel, right? That you've taken this unbiblical turn by turning your back on violence and all that sort of stuff. So how, how, how do you, it's a big issue I know, but how do you think that through?
2: And feel free if you wanted to pick an example or two of how you well, think through it. The theme of violence predominates through the Bible because I think ultimately this is the issue the Bible's trying to deal with but it's very complicated because the construction of the Bible is mediated through those who are used by the Spirit to write the Bible. But the Bible starts out something like this. In the beginning, God created everything, and it was good, and God blessed it, and he created mankind, humankind, Adam from the Adama, in his image. And then wrong choices were made. And as a result of the wrong choices, they found themselves outside the gates of Eden, And we have then the firstborn, the tiller of the ground, who gets in rivalry with the secondborn, the keeper of sheep. Anthropologists talk about the uh, tension as civilization begins to uh, harness agriculture, which really leads to the rise of sophisticated civilization, but the tension that created with the more nomadic uh, shepherding types. Mm -hmm. Well, anyways, the, the Bible tells the story um, Cain, in a field, rises up, kills Abel, lies to himself and God about it, moves east of Eden, and founds the first city. I mean, that's, that's the summary of how of how that goes. And things then exponentially get out of control with violence. It's very interesting that in the days of Noah that lead to the flood, the only sin that is specifically mentioned is violence. Now, I know we imagine a lot of lurid details, especially if we're going to make a movie out of it, Right. but all kinds of sex and all of that sort of thing. But that's not mentioned. The only sin mentioned is violence, and this is what God regrets. And then, okay, I'm just telling the story as I read it in overview. So God then attempts to deal with the problem of human violence with divine violence, with his own violence. And so the the world is drowned in a flood, all but eight. And yet that doesn't solve the problem. Uh, Because then violence very quickly returns. and And again, I'm telling you the story as it is there. And then it seems as if God adopts a new tact. And he calls Abraham. And we're on a very long, slow journey that leads all the way to Jesus. Now, um, let's just slow down let's let's talk a little bit because i want to talk a little bit about the old testament and violence and understanding that dealing with the old testament doesn't solve the problem because there are issues in the new testament as well but if i ask somebody well did god tell abraham to kill his son they will say well yes he did but god didn't actually require abraham to go through with it it was a test of faith okay well well I follow up with this question then. Did God command Joshua and King Saul and other Israelites to kill children as part of, uh, what do you want to call it? you want to call it ethnic cleansing? Do you want to call it genocide? Do you want to call it possessing the land? You can call it whatever you like, but it involves the killing of children. That's in the text. And the, and the person will say, yes, that's that's there. But then I follow up with this very pointed question. Would you kill children if God told you to do so? And maybe, I don't know what people say. They may say um, well, God doesn't do that anymore. <laughs> well, that's got its own problem. So God is in the process of change. God is mutating this is something God used to do and didn't do. Or I don't know. I think it puts people in a very difficult position. Uh, what I really get nervous about is if I ask somebody, if God told you to kill children, would you do it? And they say yes. Mm-hmm. And then, I, then I take a few steps back and say, I'm afraid of you. Uh, because this is the very kind of thing that has been used to justify pogroms, and persecutions, and genocides, and the Holocaust throughout history, that somehow God is on our side. And so it seems as if, as we look at these problems, and I don't, and understand my day job is I'm a pastor. And so these questions come to me, typically from, let's say, about high school, maybe early college age. Young people come to me, and they're kind of just beginning to put two and two together. And as they read Joshua, or as they read 1 Samuel, Samuel, they see God commanding Joshua and Samuel and others to kill children. And they're troubled by this, and they should be. And so how do we respond to this? I think our options are limited. One, we can question the morality of God. Perhaps at times God is monstrous. Uh, Two, we can question the immutability of God. Maybe God changes over time. Maybe God is in the process of mutating away from a violent past. Or, number three, we can question how we read Scripture. Uh, Some try a fourth possibility, and that's just to ignore the whole problem and hope it'll go away, but for people that once begin to think that is not a possibility. So we're left with questioning questioning the morality of God or the immutability of God or our reading of the Scriptures. Now, I know for some people that's like pick your poison. Yeah. Uh, But I have finally arrived where I have to question how I read Scripture. And what I like to say is something basically like this that in the hebrew scriptures we have the inspired telling of israel's story of coming to know their god assumptions are made along the way but if you stay on the journey it will lead you to jesus now i will have critics and peter i know you've endured the same that immediately charged me with being a marcionite right this second century heretic and i said well, let's that's that's Clarify terms here. Marcion said that the God of Israel, Yahweh, was a demiurge, a kind of lesser God or a demon, maybe, uh, and that uh, the Old Testament should just completely be, be removed from any Christian canon of Scripture. I say that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the father of Jesus. I read the Old Testament every day and I pray from it every day. So, whatever I am, I'm a long ways from Marcion. Uh, I do think we have to grapple with how we're going to read Scripture and how we're going to understand it.
0: Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by three thirty one. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax Full Service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.
1: So you're saying, Brian? Just just to jump in, you're saying that unlike Marcion, it's it, it's not we're dealing with two different gods, but we're dealing with how God is portrayed and understood by the biblical Brian. writers.
2: Yeah, it, it's it's clear to. I mean, you can you can pretend that you can completely reconcile all of these passages that you can find and that our critics will find and that the new atheist knows is there quite well with the Sermon on the Mount. But I think that's a fool's errand. I don't think you can nicely reconcile them. Mm -hmm. I think you have to acknowledge that something is changing over time. Now, in one sense, we might say, well, the most obvious fact in nature is that the sun rises in the east, travels through the heavens and sets in the west. I mean, you see it every day. What could be more obvious? And that was the assumption for eons until one day we figured out, you know what? It's not the sun that's moving. We're the ones that are moving. And I think the Bible is the, the journal of record of God's people on their journey of discovery. And we are the ones on the move. And I think that you can track. You can track that movement through Scripture, but it's not God who's changing. And, and that
1: God is, you know, Brian, that's a very different... I mean, I, I, I support that. I mean, I, I say something similar, and the Bible tells me so. So, you know, we're tracking with this. Um, but what makes people very nervous, especially, you know, Christians who come from, let's say, more of a biblicistic background, yeah, like me. American evangelicalism or fundamentalism, whatever you want to call it. Sure. You're really, um, you know, reading the Bible differently. That's more threatening than divine violence.
2: Well, yes, I, I, that, that's how they feel about it. That's how they yeah. respond about it. But um, They're well, more I,
1: comfortable with... I shouldn't... That sounds like a horrible way. Many people I know are more comfortable with tolerating a notion that God commands ethnic cleansing than they are with the notion that maybe they have to read the Bible differently. I know. I think, that,
2: I think that's a problem. I yeah. think that's a real problem.
0: Brian, I would just ask then, you know, to kind of channel that argument is it's often sort of, there has to be a monolithic way of reading the Bible. So if you begin to tinker with that, the old Testament is somehow just kind of a, a biblical writer's interpretation Of God events, what's then grounding the Christ story in something other than just saying it's, how do we get away from the fact that we as readers now have to arbitrate? And I think that's one of the core challenges. Remember
2: the opening prologue of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, etc. And then there are these references to John the Baptist. Throughout that passage, Mm -hmm. there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to witness, testify to the light that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came to testify to the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes before me ranks before me because he was before me. I think that the relationship of John the Baptist to Jesus is very analogous of the relationship of the Bible to Jesus. I would be tempted to say something like, there came a book sent from God whose name was Bible. It came to bear witness to the light that all might believe through it. It itself was not the light, but it came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. The Bible testified to him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That's (laughs) just godless liberalism there, Brian. No, no, this is... This This is is over. We're done here. This is someone that believes in Jesus. And And consider, at the end of that prologue, John says this, uh, and I'm doing this from memory. I'm going to see if I get this right. Uh, um, the, um, the, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is near the Father's heart, he has made him known. And I can see somebody saying, excuse me, John, did you just say that no one has ever seen God? John says, yeah, that's what I said. And they'll say, well, wait a minute. What about what about Abraham? He saw God and, and had a stake with him, you know, under the oaks of Mamre. Mm-hmm. What about Jacob? He saw God at the top of that ladder with the angels going up and down. And what about Moses? He saw God so much that his face was shining. And what about those 70 elders that Moses took up on Mount Sinai? It, it just flat out says, and they saw God. I mean, it says that. What about Isaiah? He saw the Lord high and lifted up in his train, filling the temple. Ezekiel saw God by the river of Kibar. And what is John going to say? He's probably going to say, you don't have to teach me the Bible. I know what it says. (laughs) But despite, no matter what, visions, dreams, revelations, theophanies, Christophanies, epiphanies that were had before the word became flesh compared to what we now have revealed in Christ, no one has ever seen God. And so, you know, when John pins, no one has ever seen God, I don't think he's ignorant of the fact that there are plenty of places in what we call the Old Testament that says thus and so saw God. But he does it anyway. And mm-hmm. so I don't think I'm being any more radical than the Apostle John.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, good good to, point. To stay there, Brian, then talk a little bit about, you know, if, if Jesus is this this revelation, you know, just think about or um, you know, pontificate here about uh, the New Testament and how violent the New Testament seems to be in Revelation. You know, that same John is including violence in the Revelation. Um, if I had my way...
2: Uh, preachers would have to obtain a special license before yeah. they could preach from the Book of Revelation. <laughs> Let me give my little spiel on, on how Please I do. The book Please move, Brian. <laughs> which, which, by the way, I think, in one sense, there is no book that is more timely, more relevant for American Christians than the Book of Revelation. But it's got to be rescued from uh, the knuckleheaded abuse of it. the The, the book of Revelation is the prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. It's done in the genre of uh, Jewish apocalyptic literature. There's nothing in one sense that the the whole book is original and none of it's original. It's original in in the way that it's crafted. But all of the images are borrowed from already existing images out of the Old Testament. And John just exaggerates that and makes them more garish. Uh, But one of the themes that runs through this is remember Daniel has the vision of these successive animals that rise up out of the sea and exercise dominion to the harm of people. He sees he sees one and it's it's like uh, what was the first one? It was like a, a lion, and the next one was like a bear, and the next one was like a leopard, and then the fourth one was not even like an animal at all. It was just some monstrous creature. But then he sees one like a son of man. That is a, a human, not a beast, that is given dominion, and this 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 humane ruler uh, brings the rule of God with its humanity with its humane treatment to the earth well john the revelator works with that and he has almost this comical aspect of a lamb not only a lamb a little lamb not only a little lamb but a little slaughtered lamb is somehow prevailing over the beasts of empire and at one point um there's this moment where the scroll that is in the hand of he who sits upon the throne, which seems to have something to do with the unfolding purposes of God. And no one's worthy to break the seals. And John begins to weep. And the elder says, well, uh, don't weep. Uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah is overcoming. He says, look, behold, look, look, the lion. And John turns looking for a lion, but he doesn't see a lion. He sees a little slaughtered lamb. And what you have in the book of Revelation is, is yes a depiction of Christ as the Lamb prevailing over the Beast of Empire? But how does He do it? I mean, later on when John depicts Christ as coming to prevail, um, he, he He comes and He's he, before the battle. He's already drenched in His own blood, and He wages war with a sword not in His hand but from His spear from from His mouth. I like to tell people, I'm one of those that have been slain by that sword from the mouth of Jesus and then raised to newness of life. So the violence is metaphorical. I think, look, I would like to do this. I would like to list every single image in the book of Revelation. I don't know how many, but it would have to be a hundred or more. And, and there would be a column and it would say metaphor. Literal, and you would go through there, and then somebody would read, Okay, uh, let's see, uh, Jesus as a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. I'm thinking that's a metaphor. But then then maybe they get Jesus on a flying white horse with a sword coming out. I think that's literal. And so they would go all the way through, and at the very end, I would say, Explain your system. (laughs) I mean, everything in the book is a metaphor, it's an image. Mm-hmm. None of it. The th- there's nothing literal in it. None of it. I mean, not, not the Godzilla monsters coming up out of the sea. Those are all images. And what, is the, what, is the, what are we to learn from Christ upon a flying white horse that has on his thigh, like in a political cartoon, uh, the word of God, and then a sword not in his hand but coming out of his mouth? I think we're supposed to learn that Jesus prevails not by the conventional weapons of war, but by, as Paul says, the, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're divinely powerful. And we don't wage war against flesh and blood. And, and that's depicted there in the book of John.
0: Let's take a minute and talk about our sponsor today, Brazos Press. Brazos published Pete's The Evolution of Adam. They have a new book on reading the Bible after genetic science called Adam and the Genome by Dennis Venema, professor of biology and New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight. Pete, you've talked again and again about the relationship between science and faith and that it's not going anywhere. We have to keep talking about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and we need more books like the one that Dennis and Scott wrote. It's it's really a wonderful piece of work that really lays out the scientific issues and always the complicated theological and hermeneutical issues about a topic that really gives us a lot to think about about the intersection of an ancient text and how to interpret it in a modern world with modern issues that we face.
0: Yeah, so check out Adam and the Genome and other books by Brazos Press, uh, who is passionate about theologically grounded books on subjects of importance to the church and the world at brazospress.com slash ends.
1: And so, so the violence is part of the rhetoric of that apocalyptic genre.
2: Yeah, that, that, that genre, genre is you know. already established before John wades into it. And so he right. uses that.
1: Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I you know, the, 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 the blood it. going 200 miles as right. high as a horse's bridle in chapter 14, that's a pretty grotesque image. But maybe, you know, to channel, I think, what you're saying, Brian, um, that's supposed to be a grotesque image. And not taken uh, as uh, obviously literally 200 miles, you know, four feet high of blood. Yeah. And and
2: I don't want to get too technical here, Peter, but I think here's my own opinion. And I'll say, okay, uh, this is my opinion. I think the book of Revelation was written probably in the nineties during the reign of Domitian, as most scholars think, but that. John the Revelator is trying to give a prophetic interpretation of the very tumultuous events of the 60s and 70s. And so John is working on the destruction of Jerusalem. And for example, a particular plague that hit uh, Rome and the famine that was a result of a crop failure in the breadbasket of Egypt during this time, I think John is trying to give a prophetic interpretation to the events of a generation earlier. Mm -hmm. And so, as in fact the writer of Daniel does, writing in probably the 150s, but he sets his book in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Darius because it's a little too edgy for him to write it as uh, a critique of Antiochus Epiphanes. I think that's what John is doing, because during the time of the 90s, um, there wasn't a lot. There had been you know, a violent persecution of Christians under Nero, and Nero's clearly depicted in there. You know, he's the 666 guy and all of that. All of that works out just fine with Nero. But by the time you get to the 90s, and Domitian is the emperor, things were pretty calm, and it seems as though these churches in Asia Minor that John has some affiliation with. Maybe he's bishop, I don't know exactly what he is.
1: The, in the um, first couple, three chapters, right? right. Of of uh, right.
2: It, it seems as though people are beginning to think, well, you know, the Roman Empire, it's, it's not that bad. It's a bad yeah. Have a nice, easy relationship of the Church of Christ with the Roman Empire, and John is saying, no, remember, this is... Right. And just, uh, just to be clear, Brian, so nobody
1: um, uh, gets the the wrong impression, when you say a prophetic critique, you don't mean prophetic the way many people read the book of Revelation. It's prophesying something that's not gonna, future
2: it's foretelling, telling, no.
1: Yeah, so. But, yeah, but I mean, that's, that's important to understand
2: the nature but operating of. Operating as critique. a prophet yeah. who brings a. Word from elsewhere, as is a, it's a Brueggemann phrase that I yes know well. right exactly outside the totalism of empire from outside of that comes the poet comes the prophet right. who's able to bring something that isn't conscripted to the order of empire. That's okay. what. I'm
1: about. Okay, well, okay. This isn't now. Let's try to stump Brian. But um, you know, another instance uh, incident that people bring up in the New Testament is Ananias and Sapphira in the Book of Acts.
2: That's a difficult one for me. Yeah, I mean, any thoughts about that? You don't have I to think give about a word it. here, but... Uh, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to say. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to grapple with it. I'm willing to leave it there. I think even though the implication is very strong, it's very strong. We're not ever actually told in the text that God killed Ananias and Spire. We're not right. told that. And right. so I would be careful about leaping to that. Right. Uh, but something certainly happens there. Yeah. Um, and great fear comes upon the church. Right. Uh, maybe that's good. Maybe that's not good. Uh, I, I haven't been a pastor for 35 years without learning that there is this default mode we go into when something really bad happens. We want to somehow believe that God is still in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this is where the book of Job offers a pushback on, for example, the book of Proverbs. If you read the book of Proverbs, the overriding theme is uh, do good, fear God, and good things will happen to you. Which, by the way, I think is true most of the time. Fear God, you know, live a righteous life, and good things happen. That's generally true. But if you try to make it absolutely the case, fear God, uh, do righteously, and good things will happen. Job says, yeah, I got a story to tell you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he brings this this counter argument. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if, if if the church wasn't tempted to read into some sort of thing that befell Ananias and Sapphira as somehow they must have deserved this. But if a listener is unpersuaded by that, uh, that's fine. I, might yeah, I, I think, I mean, that
1: might be a way that I know others think through this and I think has some promise, which is, um, I mean, no one listening to this should take this the wrong way. Just because something is written in the New Testament doesn't mean it's all the way there. Right. Right. And, and maybe parts of the book of Acts do that. And I think, you know, once you move past the whole so-called conversion of Paul business in the book of Acts, it seems like a, a corner is turned in how God relates to the church.
2: Well, and let's, let's keep in mind that one of the things that is central to Paul's conversion, I mean, Paul, yeah. would, Paul would never have seen himself as converting to a new religion. Right. I mean, Paul never would have thought that. He did convert from the idea that he could serve God by violently persecuting other people. And that's that's I'm not just reading that into that's central to the story. Mm-hmm. And as Paul tells the story, he uses the word violence, and he says, I was violently persecuting the followers of the way. And as he nears Damascus, he has this event. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it kind of unravels everything. And he, he suddenly he loses his certitude or his certainty, you know, he was marching down the road. I mean, this is Saul of Tarsus, and he has it all figured out. He knows that this Jesus of Nazareth can't be the Messiah after all the Bible says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And so he feels that he must, he he must violently persecute these people because they're challenging uh, Hebrew orthodoxy. And then he has this mystical experience where he encounters the reality of the risen Christ saying that, in fact, you're persecuting me. And now he doesn't know anything. And he has to be led by the hand like a child, and he's in the darkness. And he's in that situation for three days where he doesn't know what he believes. And then Ananias, this is a different Ananias, you know, is sent to him. And he comes in and and he addresses him, Brother Saul. And then we're told the scales fell from his eyes. It's as if his conversion is actually... Two stages. The first stage is that which deconstructs everything. And what he is, what he has been so convinced is true, suddenly he realizes isn't true, and everything's fallen to pieces and he's in the darkness. And then the second stage is when one of these Christians, these members of the way, comes to him, these he represents those whom Saul is violently persecuting and calls him Brother Saul. Suddenly The scales from Paul from his eyes. And he becomes a follower of Jesus and never again endorses the idea of employing violence in the service of God.
1: Well, okay, how then does, in your opinion, how does the cross and the violence of that death fit into all of this? Mm -hmm. Because it seems like, I mean, it doesn't seem like. This is what people say, like, this is an act of violence
2: on the part of the Father. Well, it's, it's a, it's a hyper act of violence. It's not on the part of the Father. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. N.T. Wright, in his new book, uh, says, unfortunately, we've been taught to read that God so hated the world that he killed his only begotten son. Yeah. That's not what happened. I look at it this way. Uh, we have a world gone wrong. It's followed the Cain model of we kill our brothers, whom we call others and enemies, hide the bodies largely behind memorials and monuments and myths and anthems and flags. And we continue this, whether it's through Pharaohs or Caesars or all the way, all the way down through history, this is the way we've arranged the world. And, so an, an intervention must be staged. Someone that loves us must stage an intervention. And God loves the world. And through Christ, he enters into the human predicament with us. Jesus begins to announce and enact the kingdom of God in his preaching, in his table practice, and healing the sick and all that he does. And it reaches this moment of culmination on Good Friday, when we violently send our sins into Jesus' body. Indeed, he bears our sins because we send them into him. Uh, the sins of the world are violently sinned into Jesus, and he bears them. But he doesn't die like the father of Judah Maccabeus, Judah the hammer, who, who, was, who died crying out for him. He says, avenge my blood. And then his son, Judah Maccabeus, uh, launches a revolution, becomes kind of a prototype for a Messiah figure. And Jesus doesn't die like that. He doesn't die saying, avenge my blood. He, does, he dies praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In resurrection, we see the Father vindicating everything that Jesus did and taught. And Jesus comes back from the grave. And the first word of the new world is peace be with you. And so we, we violently sin our sins, the sin of the world, which is hating the other, failing to recognize them as brother, calling them enemy, killing them always in the name of our God and right and truth and freedom and whatever vague nebulous concept we hang on it. We send those sins into Jesus. He dies. He bears those sins down to death, Sheol, Hades, the grave. He shakes them off and leaves them there and then rises to say to us, I have not come back to exact my revenge. I've come back to invite you into a new order of living, a new kingdom. Peace be with you. And so the the cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. Maybe my all-time favorite theological sentence is from Hans Urs von Balthasar, who said, Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is so when we look at christ upon the cross that's not what god does in order to forgive that's who god is and jesus is embodying the very nature of the father so that when jesus says father forgive them what does the father say of course of course this is what we do and that is the embodiment of that
0: you you hinted brian at this and i don't want to open up a whole nother can of worms but part of this conversation, I think, where it gets murky is this line between kind of that personal peacemaking, and then when it gets kind of political, where you mentioned the flags and how we do this kind of as a state. And I wonder how you, how do you make that bridge of saying, you know, I had this mystical experience, I read the Bible now in this way of a peaceful, toward peaceful living. How does that get into uh, public discourse around the kind of policies we should have as a country. How do you bridge that gap? How do you cross that bridge in conversation? Um, wh- what are some of the things that you, you might say? Well, somebody's going to
2: ask, is it all right for a 18-year-old boy to go off to war in the name of love of country? And He's a Christian and he asked god to help him do the task that he's been called to do for love of hearth and home and defend his defend his land from foreign invaders and most american christians will say yes yes that's acceptable i said is it acceptable if it's an 18 year old german boy in 1942 and so what we've done is we've we've made it absolutely impossible i mean most I think most Christians at least want to find their way into an Augustinian uh, just war theory. The problem is, if you go down the road of just war, you you have to make you have to turn every eighteen year old into a theologian, (laughs) and I think that's impossible. I think I am. I believe in the kingdom of Christ. And I believe that Jesus is Lord, not Lord elect, not Lord going to be, not Lord someday, that he is Lord now. And I need to seek to embody the reign of Christ as a follower of Christ within the context of the church. Now, in this present moment, um, in my baptismal identity, I belong to the age to come. I mean, that's kind of what baptism is about. It's, it's the end of an old life. It's the inauguration of the life to come in my own being as I seek to live out this life of following Jesus with my fellow believers so that the church is from the future. You know, if you go to a, a, a movie, before they have the feature film, they show these little trailers, these previews, you know, little five-minute or two-minute excerpt of of the movie that's going to come it's not the whole movie but it's enough to give you an idea of what it's like and i think that's what the church is to be the church should be a preview of the age to come people should be able to look at the church and say hmm i see this is where this is going the church father Origen, in his response to the to the pagan critic celsus His ultimate defense was not Origen's, you know, keen mind and rhetorical skills, but he simply pointed to the church as uh, as communities of love. And he says, come see a community of people who have rearranged their life around love. Uh, This was the order of the day, more or less, imperfectly, albeit, for the church, all the way up until you arrive with Constantine and suddenly we have uh, the marriage of church and state. This creates a problem. The the confession that Jesus is Lord no longer carries the same weight. So Jesus gets demoted from actually being Lord to being the secretary of afterlife affairs. And Mm -hmm. Jesus' task now is to get our soul into heaven when we die so that we can go ahead and baptize Caesar and let him run the world, which is in fact the same way that runs all the way back to Cain. Right. I think, I think the call of Christ into his kingdom is extraordinarily radical. And it's, it's not an easy fit. I'm not a Christian anarchist. I, I do believe in governance. I believe that Christians can participate in it, but I think they're always walking a thin line. Mm-hmm. For example, I do make a distinction. I understand this is a difficult distinction in some cases, but I make a distinction between a police function and the waging of war and I think a police function is necessary within a civil civil society I think though that waging of war is incompatible with following Jesus and I don't think uh, that may sound like I'm a crazy uh fanatic saying that and yet I think I'm pretty consistent with the vast majority of the church fathers for the first 300 years of the church when I talk that way yeah
1: well Brian this is a, a challenging topic and you've given us a lot to think about and uh Our time's coming to an end. So how about, you know, just as we sort of sign off here, um, maybe just quickly tell us what you're writing and what, you know, maybe if you're working on another book now, and uh, maybe where people can find you online and that sort of thing. Talk about yourself.
2: Yeah, it's not hard to find me online because I have an odd name, Brian Zond, and there aren't many Zonds. You'll find plenty of them in Switzerland, but not many here. So you Google Brian Zond, you find the good, the bad, and the ugly. But my website is just my name, BrianZahn.com. And then, you know, I'm on Twitter and a little bit on Facebook, although Facebook's a little bit too volatile for me, so I, I try yeah. to be careful there. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my last couple of books, some of what we talked about today would be, especially the peace and war issues would be in my book, A Farewell to Mars. Right. My most recent book that's out is a spiritual memoir that tells my story of risking it all and making some major theological shifts in my forties called water to wine. And then I have a book coming out with, from Waterbrook. I it's, I think it doesn't come out to August. They have a release date. I don't have it in my head, but it's August something or other. It's called sinners in the hands of a loving God. You see what I did there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, Only um, Calvinists know exactly what you did. Yeah, it's going to be really popular with all of the young Calvinists. They're going to, um, <laughs> I'll tell you what I do with this book. Even though I don't specifically say this is what I'm doing in the book, I am in fact responding to well, what about the Old Testament? What about violence? What about the fear of God? did we just do away with that? What about the wrath of God? The Bible talks a lot about the wrath of God. What about hell? What about uh, the Book of Revelation? All these sorts of things that we've kind of touched on in brief are, uh, to my own satisfaction, addressed in that book. But that's not
1: when, when is that going to come out, Brian? August. I don't oh, have fantastic. the fantastic. Okay. That's great. Okay, listen, Brian, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to have you on. Looking forward to that book. It sounds fantastic, and bless you.
0: Thank you, Peter. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Remember to pick up Brian's book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. It's coming out here in about a month, so make sure you check it out on Amazon. Pre-order it. If you want to Uh, further the conversation about divine violence. Also, we would love it if you like this podcast, if you like the conversations that we have about the Bible, to go on iTunes Rate us um, and give us a little bit of a review um, if you're enjoying the conversations there. Also, check us out online at thebiblefornormalpeople.com, where you can join in the conversations, reply to a lot of the writings and blog posts that are there. You can find Pete N's online on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find me, Jared Bias, on Twitter at j b y a s. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.
1: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks.